to Fantastic History. I'm Sarah. And I'm Clay. We're a husband and wife duo who enjoy telling each other about amazing events, people, and mysteries throughout history. Recently, I've been doing some research on a writing project where I needed to know things that were invented or discovered by women in like the last century or so. Right. I came across a ton of incredible women whose stories I've never heard before. So I definitely like use that to pad out my list of some future topics. I'm excited about that. Cool. Um, But there's one person in particular that I was like, okay, we need to talk about this right now. Are you familiar with the actress Hedy Lamarr? You know, that sounds pretty familiar. Yeah, she was one of the big name A-list actresses of the golden age of films, like black and white talkies, like Uh mid-1930s to mid-1950s is kind of when she was active. Right. Uh, I'll be posting lots of pictures of her on our Instagram this week. So check us out at Fantastic H Pod for some Hedy Lamar pics. She was, um, like I said, active not only in the film industry, but also on the stage. Did a lot of like stage plays and theater and things uh, between 1930 and 1958, more specifically. Her breakout role was in the then controversial Czech film Ecstasy in 1933. Described as an erotic romantic drama, it was the first non-porn movie to show sex and a female orgasm. Wow. And that was in 1933. Yikes. Yeah. Needless to say, people lost their minds over this. Now, for some reason, a journalist from the Vatican attended a screening of the movie and went crying to the Pope about how scandalous it was. So Pope Pius XI formally denounced it, which of course only serves to bring more attention to the movie. Yeah, of course. Uh, for those of you who remember us talking about the Hayes Code, uh, which I think was during the A to Z Guide to Panic series. That's right. Um, it's probably no surprise that the distributor had a hard time getting this movie approved to be shown in the U.S., The initial rejection from the Hayes office contains this banger of an explanation. I regret to have to advise you that we cannot approve your production ecstasy that you submitted for our examination yesterday for the reason that it is our considered unanimous judgment that the picture is definitely and specifically in violation of the production code. This violation is suggested by the basic story and that it is a story of illicit love and frustrated sex treated in detail without sufficient compensating moral values. That was a great voice. Thank you. Um, that wasn't me. That was a man from the 1930s. Oh, of course. That was a recording that we just, we played for you guys um, <laughs> that I found. So yeah, don't worry about that. <laughs> When it was finally released in America, which was two years later, it was only shown in independent movie houses since it didn't earn the Hayes seal of approval. And even then, some states either demanded extensive editing or banned it altogether. Wow. Yeah. Kind of not surprising. No, not at all. Uh, Considering that people all over the world were talking about her, Hetty had a relatively easy time making the transition to American film after that going on to star against heavy hitters like Judy Garland and Clark Gable. Mm. She was often referred to as the most beautiful woman in the world. And in fact, her beauty has long outlived her name. Even if a lot of people today don't remember her, such as you, for instance, Clay, you've definitely seen her. Because not only was she the inspiration for Snow White, 
in Disney's Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Okay. She was also the basis for Catwoman in the Batman comics. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. When I tell you Hedy Lamar was banging, she was banging. Like, she was a huge deal. And that's kind of underselling it. So I'm going to take a second, honey, since you don't really remember what she looked like. And, guys, I will post this, of course, on our Instagram. But I just, to give you an idea of what we're talking about here... I'll pull up a picture to show you. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. She just showed me a picture of Hedy Lamar, and she is very gorgeous. She is the most beautiful woman in the world, arguably. I think you would not be crazy to think that. I wouldn't. I wouldn't. But here's the thing. Even though her acting is what she's primarily remembered for, she was actually a prolific inventor whose technology all of us rely on every single day. Okay. So let me take you back to the start of her story. Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler was born on November 9th, 1914 in Vienna, Austria, and was the only child of concert pianist Gertrude Lieschwitz and banker Emil Kiesler, who were both Jewish. Even though Emil worked a desk job, he was a very curious man, and he shared that curiosity with his daughter. From the time she was a toddler, he started taking her on long walks around Vienna, and he would point out things that caught his interest, like streetcars, for example. And he and Hetty would stand there and talk about, how do you think the streetcar works? Well, look at, watch the tracks, watch how it moves on the tracks, watch the, the electric line that goes over it. And they would sit there and talk about it, how they thought it worked until they figured it out, and they'd move on to the next thing. <laughs> She was a brilliant child, but nobody other than her parents seemed to care about that because she was also beautiful. Her mother enrolled her in music and ballet lessons as a way to fill her time when she wasn't playing junior engineer, and people could just not get over how beautiful and graceful and poised this little girl was. This was something that Hetty always resented, and she was later quoted as saying, rather bitterly, any girl can be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But those walking talks with her dad got her so curious that by the time she was five years old, she was disassembling music boxes and putting them back together again. Okay. So even from five, like that's kind of her jam. She's going to ballet class, like go to school, go to ballet, come home, disassemble a machine, reassemble it, go to bed, start over. Really doing doing two very different types of things. Yes, yes. Cool. In 1930, at the age of 16, she was discovered by Max Reinhardt, a theater and film director. She moved to Berlin to study acting with him and made her first movie appearance later that year. Soon after, she met a guy by the name of Fritz Mandel, who had become a big fan of hers after seeing her in the play Sissy. To the surprise of no one, lots of men who saw her at the theater fell in love with her. (laughs) And she was constantly having bouquets of roses and sometimes the men themselves showing up outside her dressing room door. But she would always like shoo them away and just keep on moving, not interested. She tried to shoo Fritz away too, but he was straight up obsessed with her and would not take no for an answer. In a way that was like charming back then, but would be illegal today. Yeah. 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 A couple of years of persistence later, they were married. Fritz was a munitions manufacturer. He was also, I'll just cut right to the chase, a fascist 
and had a lot of friends in the Nazi party. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Hetty was forced to grin and bear it when people like Benito Mussolini, Ermin Goering, and allegedly Adolf Hitler himself came over to have business meetings with and buy weapons from her husband. That's not so great. It's not. And if you were wondering why I mentioned that her parents were Jewish, this is why. Mm-hmm. Can you imagine? Yeah. Having to serve a meal to Goring and Hitler as a Jewish person. Crazy. Literally a nightmare. Yeah. Horrific. Even on top of being a piece of flaming human refuse, Fritz was also a bad husband, if you can believe that. Turns out his courting of Hetty was only the beginning of his psychotic possessive behavior. In her autobiography, Ecstasy in Me, Hetty says, I knew very soon that I could never be an actress while I was his wife. He was the absolute monarch in our marriage. I was like a doll. I was like a thing. Some object of art which had to be guarded and imprisoned, having no mind, no life of its own. Mm. Yeah. After four brutally long years where she was forbidden from working and was rarely allowed to leave the house by herself, Hetty filed for divorce and got the hell out of Austria. Good. Good oh, for yeah. her. Get out of there, girl. Because I think by then it's like 1937. So you're going to be wanting getting out of there anyway. You yeah. Know? Not not the place to be. Agreed. Yeah. She didn't take much with her because she was fleeing. But one thing she escaped out of that house with was four years worth of German military intel she picked up when forced to serve dinner to Nazis. Wow. Yeah. While they might not have discussed the most high level top secret things in front of her, she was just some housewife with more beauty than brains. So why would they bother being quiet in front of her? Like, so what? Mm hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In London, she met Louis B. Meyer, as in Metro Goldwyn Meyer, as in MGM Studios. Yeah. He encouraged her to contract with him to act in American movies. And as far as her film career goes, you kind of know what happens next. But it's all the other stuff that happened next that I'm like really amped about. One of the first Hollywood friends that she made was legendary director and inventor and general wackadoo Howard Hughes. (laughs) (laughs) Howard Hughes is going to get his own episode eventually. He really should because there's a lot to say about about all Howard. Yeah. So they, they kind of sort of dated him and Hetty, but they were each far more interested in each other's brains than each other's bodies. Interesting. Yeah, because this yeah. is like two genius level people, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of be like one of the great things about being around other hot people for somebody like Hetty, who's always been told like, oh, you're so beautiful, you're so beautiful, and they don't really care about her mind, is nobody really notices or cares about your hotness anymore because everyone is hot so that just kind of becomes the norm yeah you know so now you're in a situation where your intelligence and your personality can like come more into focus she dove so hard back into curiosity seeking that howard ended up gifting her a mini laboratory to set up in her trailer so she could tinker with her ideas and inventions in between takes on movie sets Wow. She had like her own little inventor's table set up in her home, but now she had a little mobile lab that Howard Hughes gave to her so she can keep on working when she's not acting. That's that's exciting. Isn't that great? Yeah. I love that for her. Howard was famously big into airplanes, what with his biopic being called The Aviator and all. Yeah, Yeah. 
And his plane factories was one of Hetty's favorite places to hang out. Not only did she get to watch the planes being assembled, but she also got to meet and talk to the scientists and engineers behind their design and construction. Howard even told her, anything you want my scientists to do for you, just ask and they'll do it. That is, that is, um, that is, that is a great offer. Yeah. Can you imagine? Oh, my God. So one thing she developed and had two of Howard's chemists create for her during this time was a tablet that you could drop into a glass of water that turned it into Coca-Cola. What? Yeah. So it was like it was a square kind of like the size and shape of a square ice cube. And it was like dehydrated, compressed Coca-Cola. So it was like the the first uh, soda stream. Yeah, pretty much. It was. It would be similar to like an Alka-Seltzer. You just kind of drop it in. It yeah. fizzes. It does the whole thing. So wow. she, she explained, you know, during the war, nobody had Coca-Cola. And I wanted to compress it into a cube so that servicemen and factory people, all they had to have is water and put it in. That is very nice. Isn't that amazing? That is too cool. Now, it ended up not taking off because the way she explained it was... You know, different places have different water. Like where we live, the water is very different, like the tap water, than if we were to go down to Charleston, like the coast. Their tap water is very different than ours. Yeah. Tap water in New Orleans, very different. New York City, very different. So sometimes the tablet would like sink to the bottom and start to dissolve. Other times it would float on the top and start to dissolve. Other times it's just kind of, you know, whatever. So it ultimately didn't work out quite the way that she wanted it to because it was tested for Los Angeles water. Right. So that's why we don't still have that around today and why that didn't quite make it because she couldn't, you can't account for every water. Yeah. So it's true, but brilliant idea and it worked, but just kind of locally. Yeah. When she heard that Howard was stumped trying to figure out how to make his planes go faster She started doing research on which birds and which fish were the fastest in their species because that that would mean that they're the most aerodynamic. Mm -hmm. So then she takes that information and designed new airplane wings based on that anatomy. Okay. So at that time, airplane wings were boxy and rectangular. They're just, you know, four corners on the wings like you see on like a biplane, even. Yeah. You know, all airplanes at that time had these square, you know, perfectly rectangular wings. But the design that Hetty came up with, based on the wings of birds and the fins of fish, was much closer to the triangular slanted wings that you see on airplanes to this day. Okay. She's the one who came up with that. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. Her biggest triumph and most long-lasting scientific legacy came in 1940 when she met avant-garde composer George Antheil at a dinner party. And I did not look up how to pronounce his last name, so I apologize. He will only be called George (laughs) from now on. So if I butchered that, you don't have to hear it again. Don't worry about it. And also, sorry (laughs) to this man. We have to do that quite a bit. You know, what what are you going to do? So she meets George at this like Hollywood dinner party because he's a composer. She's an actress. This is not like some science convention or whatever. Yeah. So they chit chatted for a while about just like normal stuff. But then, you know, inevitably their conversation turns to the war because it's 1940. Yeah. 
she lamented that she's over here in Hollywood making all this money and not really able to do anything to help with the war effort over in Europe, which of course is where she's from. George had that same sort of curious inventor's mind that she had. So they started spitballing ideas like things that they could come up with that might help. And as an aside, I'd like to say that had the Air Force implemented her idea for the fin-shaped airplane wings, she would have already like well and truly done her part in the war effort. Um, But they didn't. So Mm. they stuck with the old school boxy design. If you look at any World War II, I was scouring the internet for any World War II airplane that didn't have those boxy wings, but they all did. Interesting. So that's on them. Every fighter jet now has the Hedy Lamar wings. You're welcome. (laughs) Anyway, one of the biggest issues the Allies were having was with torpedo guidance. Aiming a torpedo is reliant on radio frequencies, so the Nazis could thwart torpedoes pretty easily by simply jamming that single radio frequency being used. After a lot of back and forth, Hetty and George decided that dueling pianos were the answer. Hmm. They sat down on a piano bench, George played a note, and then Hetty played that same note on a different scale. Yeah. So in doing that, she realized that like something like this, you could establish communication between a transmitter and a receiver if they hit the same note at the same time. So basically playing the piano in different scales, but in tandem using 88 frequency keys. You're both hitting the C, then an A, then a B, then an F, then a D and just kind of, but at different parts, you know, different scales. Right. Building off of this, they came up with something called frequency hopping, where the guidance system and the torpedo itself would synchronously switch from one radio frequency to the next, staying on each frequency for only a fraction of a second until it reached the target. Okay. That way, even if the Germans successfully jammed one of the 88 radio frequencies being used, the transmitter and the receiver are only on that frequency for a snap anyway. So jamming is now rendered useless. You can't jam these frequencies anymore. Hey. Right? Yeah. The device they came up with to make this work was based on the paper roll that a player piano uses. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I was able to find a picture of the actual patent they submitted, and I'll post that on our Instagram because it's really cool looking. Even though they were granted this patent in 1942, the Navy didn't end up using their device, and the patent expired in 1959. Oh, man. I know. But three years later, when the government would no longer have to pay Hetty and George for their invention, their exact device was used for missile guidance during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. Go figure. How about that? What a weird coincidence that they didn't implement it until it was free. Well, I wonder how common it is that they would uh, that, that they would go through all these expired patents and be like, anything useful in here that we can just go ahead and snap up? Right. I don't know. I mean, or maybe they find patents that look good and they set them aside until they expire and it's free. You maybe. Know? I don't know. You, Who, you, you, who's to say? You'd think if it looked good at the time, you'd want to go ahead and implement it because it's going to be so useful. Oh, yeah. Why take... Why? Why, why not? Yeah, I Cause, don't, cause, I don't know. Because during World War II, it's not like they were... It's not like the um, the Americans were scrapped for cash. Right. We were building planes 
like crazy. Right. Ships and and the war effort was was insane. There there was no, there was nothing we didn't the Project Manhattan. Right. There was nothing that we weren't when it came to came to the war that we weren't throwing money at. Although I wonder, I mean, all of the things you just mentioned though, that's all Air Force. So I wonder if because they were putting so much money into the Air Force and the Manhattan Project. I mean, going back to our, you know, um, our carrots episode. Yeah. How a lot of the war, you know, not just America, but other allies were, were going air power because it's harder to to fight in the air. Like you can drop a bomb on a whole city and nobody can fight back and the pilot will always get through and all that. So I wonder if if her invention had been something that the Air Force could have used, if maybe it would have been worth the time and expense. You know, I just, I don't know, because I could not anywhere find a reason why they didn't use it. I would be curious too, and if anyone out there knows, please tell us, because I do have an episode coming up in the next few weeks that's going to be about um, the use of submarines in World War II. Okay. But I haven't dug into it yet. Right. And it doesn't deal exclusively with the U.S. Right. Um, but if anyone out there knows, I think we would both like to know. Oh, I, it would be great to know why that, because this seems perfect. I'd love to know why they didn't use it. Yeah. Especially because it did later prove to be useful. I mean, over 20 years later, they were like, you know what? Actually, this rules. We should use it. Hmm. What's more interesting, though, is how her frequency hopping design continued to evolve over time. Because the Cuban Missile Crisis was not the last time it was used. Electronics manufacturer Sylvania later modified the design and called it spread spectrum. Where frequency hopping relies on like pseudo-random number sequences and the finite amount of 88 channels, spread spectrum uses a sequential signal structure to spread out the signal even farther. Now, I'm not a science person, as y'all know, so I don't <laughs> want to get like too into the weeds on this. But cordless phones, cell phones, Bluetooth, Wi-Fi, and GPS all use either frequency hopping or spread spectrum. Okay. So, you know, stuff we are actively using right now, like I literally am reading my notes on my cell phone, which is connected to Wi-Fi and Bluetooth yeah. as we speak. Um, and to anybody listening, you're probably using it right now, too. You're probably listening through a Bluetooth of some kind. For sure. Cell phone of some kind. So uh, thanks, Hetty. Appreciate you. Yeah. In 1997, the Electronic Frontier Foundation presented Hetty and George with the Pioneer Award for their work on frequency hopping technology. And the following year, Hetty became the first woman to receive the Invention Convention's Bulby Nass Spirit of Achievement Award. Several years after her death at the age of 85, Hetty was posthumously inducted into the National Inventors Hall of Fame in 2014. Cool. Today, her invention is worth an estimated $33 billion. Wow. And she didn't see a penny of it. Ah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Ain't that just the way it goes? Isn't it always the way? The, the more brilliant you are, the more you just get screwed. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. And it, well, you know, it, it, you, when, when you're talking about frequency hopping, it made me think of Star Trek. Oh, I'm because... stunned. <laughs> you amaze me. Because <laughs> <laughs> in Star Trek, 
they change the frequency of these shields so that they can't shoot through the shields by um you know programming their torpedoes or phasers or whatever to the same frequency to go right through it so Hedy Lamar, thank you for saving the Star Trek or the Starship Enterprise on numerous occasions. Yeah, thank you, Hedy. I'm sure that's what you were going for. Well, she had no idea the impact that she would have. I mean, truly, truly. Yeah. And that is the amazing life story of Hedy Lamar. That is too cool. Isn't that fun? Yeah. I, I couldn't wait to do that one. Like, I've got probably six or seven other ladies that I got to talk about who completely changed the world and we don't remember or appreciate them at all. Yeah. Of course. Um, but Hetty, I was like, this we got to talk about it now. Also, I need to show you these pictures immediately because Hoochie Mama. Yeah, Gadzooks. What a cutie. Yeah. Well, guys, thank you for tuning in, checking us out, giving us a little bit of your time today. If you enjoyed that story, please take a second to rate and review on whatever podcast platform you're using. You can also check us out on Instagram. We are at Fantastic HPod. We have a thread account um, hooked up to the Instagram account. But if you're also on threads, you've probably noticed we've literally never posted on it at all. Um, <laughs> oh, I, I, I almost never remember to even open threads just for personal use because like, I don't know, man, Twitter died and my heart's just not in it anymore. You know, yeah. I don't know. But hey, uh, if you know the answer to why they didn't use Hetty's patent, or if you have any other story ideas for us, questions, concerns, you want to tell us that we're just like amazing and it's too much to fit in an Instagram comment <laughs> or a DM or whatever, we are fantastichistorypod at gmail.com. Until next time. Bye. Bye.